Spoiler warning. If you have not seen Blade Runner 2049, I recommend watching the film before this podcast. We will be walking through Blade Runner 2049 today. So, John, what is Blade Runner 2049 about? Well, 30 years after the original, Rick Deckard again finds himself at the mercy of a replicant who really should probably just kill him. Last time out, he was unfairly rescued by a rejected frontman for an 80s East German disco crossed with the Terminator. This time, he's saved, but for some reason, by a supermodel with daddy issues who falls in love with his Alexa, but then gets upset when he learns that she's not monogamous. <laughs> Welcome to This Podcast Could Be Your Life. This film could be your life. Oh. It's okay. You Hold on. Just do that, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. By the way, you took the her reference, and it fits a lot better for it this does. movie. It does. I yeah, know. That's that's like, as soon as I started writing, I was like, oh, that's Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. My name is Jonathan Devine. Joining me is Mike Overstreet. Hey, Mike. Hey. On this podcast, we like to talk about movies. We're both huge movie fans. We like to think about about it with kind of a spiritual bent, uh, just kind of the way we are, the way we think. And each week, we kind of are going to try to switch focus from an older movie to a more recent movie. Last week, we talked about Blade Runner for our first episode. This week... Uh, seem natural. We're jumping forward to Blade Runner 2049. Uh, once again, spoilers, we don't really summarize the movie. We're just going to kind of get into it about our experience. Uh, what's your history with seeing the movie? Actually, I'm going to answer for you. We saw this movie for the first time together. We did. Do you remember that? that. I, yeah. I didn't until right now. I didn't until uh, I was rewatching yesterday and I was trying to remember. I think it was you, me, Ricky, and um, there's someone else there, but... I don't ever remember hanging out you, with you. You don't remember? No, you that's never, blank, blank. You never keep that one That's a blank up. one. Uh, and we were both huge fans of the original. Yeah. And... I think that's my history at this film, was I was not well-versed with the director yet. Had Arrival come out? Yeah. So I'd seen Arrival, very yeah. excited about that. Hated the idea of a Blade Runner sequel. I really did, too. Yeah. I was so nervous about everything with this movie. And I loved Arrival, so that's not mm. really fair, but... Um, it seemed like one of those things where they got they plucked a good first time director kind of out of their zone and then gave mm-hmm. them this ambitious money making project. Yeah, that might just be a bust. District and, nine. Yep, exactly. Felt like a district nine. Situation. It felt like a perfect district nine situation, mm-hmm. um, and this was going to be his Elysium, and it was going to be terrible. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I went in expecting it to be the worst movie ever. I think the last scene of the first one makes me want to hold on to that as the ending of the Blade Runner series, or it sure. did. And then this movie blew me away. It's insane. I, I was pretty similar in terms of, uh, I guess I had, str- I had more faith in it mm. when I, but I definitely didn't think it would be good. Right. Or <laughs> yeah. like, I thought, I thought it would be, I had faith in it. I didn't think it would be good. No, no, 
I uh, well, I get you. I there was no way this wasn't going to be a disappointment. Sure, there was no way it would it would approach the first exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I was completely blown away. We both were. I remember walking out. We talked about it very cursorily, and we're just like, oh, oh my god, (laughs) they did it. Um, yeah, and then I think since then, I have rewatched. This is actually it's funny. I've already rewatched it way more than the original. I've rewatched in the last year and a half, like, or two years or whatever, uh, three or four times. It's about probably. five days out of your life. Yeah, probably. You're not really kidding. It's, it's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, it's almost 20 hours. <laughs> it's a long movie. Uh, you hadn't rewatched it though, right? No, this is the first time. Uh, partly with the length. Mm-hmm. Um, partly just because it's one of those films I never really thought I would need to rewatch again or how much value I get out of rewatching it. And I was wrong. So I got a lot out of it on the second time. Well, the first thing we do here is we're going to talk about stray thoughts, just uh, kind of things that came up uh, when we were watching the film ideas and thought processes. Uh, I think the, the first thing I have written down here, I already told you this yesterday, so this won't be a huge surprise, but hot take way better in the first movie. Yeah, is which is insane. Actually, even take. based on what we were just saying, right? That the first movie is so iconic for me. One of the best sci-fi movies I've ever seen. One of the most impactful. And the more I rewatch this one, the more convinced I am. It basically exceeds it on almost every level. I want to say certainly. I think technically, and you know, just in thematically and acting and writing and cinematography and I don't know. It just it does everything for me. It's 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 essentially perfect. When it does highlight, I think one of the things that I like uh, about the second one, and actually that reflects well on the first one, mm. is it reminds you how hampered to some degree, you know, sure. the original one was by its time. Yeah. Right. I think if they made Blade Runner today, it would look like this film. It mm. may not be. The, it would not be the same. I yeah. think one of the differences that I like more about the original is that it's a leaner movie. It has mm-hmm. a lot more. Um, this is not short. No, this, this, short, this film loves to meander. It's like a mm. stroll through set pieces. Um, but yeah, but it's one of those things that at least the age really amplifies the success of this film. Yeah. Um, if you go back and watch the first Blade Runner, there are these weird models of pyres shooting fire into the air and, and they look totally fake. And it's amazing how you can jump 30 years later and special effects make this just a infinitely better film on its own. Which I'll build off of that onto a straight thought I had written down, which is I was actually one thing I I realized watching it, though, is there is there are a lot of examples of really visual, visually stunning set pieces in this movie, even though. So like it's coming out in 2015, 16. It came out in the last few years. Yeah. And 17, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is in the age of computers and whatever, but the more watching it, I'm like, you know, the scene in the Vegas with, or in Vegas with the holograph kind of fight scene. Yeah. The, um, the Wallace's, I called it Wallace's House of Creeps. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not good. With the, with the lighting and stuff. <laughs> uh, even like the Rachel lookalike, which is, yeah, freaky. Like, I've, I'm, this time I was like staring at it because I knew it was coming. And I'm like, let me find, let me just look at it. And maybe I couldn't decide if like my brain knows it's not real and that's why it looked uncanny 
or if it's just like it really does look like her. And well, either it, way, it's freaking. it is really funny because this did come out around the same time as the new Star Wars, mm-hmm. and the CGI people in that movie are terrible looking. Yeah, like, you mean the, the replacement? Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah. horrible. And like in Rogue One, is and that it, what you mean? it does help that the per- that she is in a dark setting. Mm-hmm. So I do think the dimmed lights help you cover up probably like oh, sure. high light would show you that this is clearly not a real person. Mm-hmm. But man, she still looks infinitely looks more insane. real than a film that came out what a year before this one. Yeah, probably? somewhere yeah. around there. Um, the whole way that Joy interacts with the world, like that she's phasing through everything, and sometimes she's glitching out. Yeah, and yeah, no, in every. Like, I don't know, I just realized it this time. It's visually, it looks incredible. It's a stunning film. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's on such a level. Uh, yeah, no, I think it looks incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Vegas scene, which is funny, because the first time we've talked about this off the podcast, but the first time I watched this movie, the Vegas scene felt like it went on forever. Yeah. And I think... I, I'm pretty sure I said the same thing when we walked out of it. We were like, man, it really dragged there in the middle. Yeah, yeah. And this time... One, a point that you've made in other conversations is that the whole film kind of has that feel. It all drags. And it's intentional. It's trying to have these long shots, these long walking scenes, this atmospheric kind of build. But when I got to the Vegas scene this time, I could not look away. It's just a gorgeous shot set piece. Mm -hmm. The whole thing. And that the, the Elvis fight. Is it's one of the so coolest cool. scenes it's I have so seen cool. in a long time. Yeah, and it's something. There's also something about this movie. If I don't know if this is this is no longer necessarily in re- reaction to the first movie, but it feels very grounded too. Mm-hmm. It's like that whole scene. I'm like, I could imagine that as being something that happens, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Tupac was was a hologram a few years ago, so it's like, yeah, this would be something they would make in, in the quote unquote future, and. Uh, it could break, but it breaks down. There's yeah. such a there's such a better understanding of technology, I think, in this movie too. That some things are shiny and new and great, but most things are very worn. It's got that worn future mm-hmm. look. Uh, the first one has that too, but it's just not. This is just on another level. Again. Yeah, like it's just yeah. taken to a greater extreme. Well, and I think one of the great themes of the film is, and I mean, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, I don't think, but underneath the disguise of progress is something that is dying. Something that yeah. is like sick, very mm-hmm. sick. And there is, so there is the breaking down holograms. There is the, I mean, everything looks like it's alive, but Every, it's so dead. Yeah. Like it's breaking, yeah. it's glitching. It's, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, that reminds me too. One thing I really took away is just how much more that reminds me how much more this film opens up the world and mm-hmm. the universe. Uh, you know, the first movie is it's, I almost read it more like a short story in some ways. Like it's very, and not in a bad way, but it's hyper personal, right? Yeah. yeah and it, yeah. it's not really, it's not exploring or even hinting at like the universe. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there's off world colonies and there's some throwaway line about yeah, and the first people like, want to go minutes, there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And most of it's a very contained thing. Yeah. This movie accomplishes, I compared it um, previously to The Empire Strikes Back, right? Which is a movie that expands dramatically on the scope of the universe compared to the original. Um, Suddenly we're seeing, and notice it's not that we're really, it's not like we're diving into the geopolitics, but they're hinting at all these bigger things. They talk about the blackout, which is such a cool idea of like suddenly all digital information got 
destroyed or almost destroyed. And they talk about, you know, off-world colonies being where essentially everyone with money lives. And they show you the Las Vegas Municipal Waste San Diego District. So they're just leaving it. They're just, they're, they're just hinting at all these things. And then it's your imagination that captures it and is like, whoa, this world feels so much yeah. more lived in and real. And they have a sea wall. They have a whole wall in Los Angeles to protect against the sea. Like all this stuff, it's just crazy. And again, like it's so cool to me because it just opens up the universe so much. But at the same time, it's a more intimate movie emotionally, which I think we'll get to later, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. What else you got? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I really liked about this movie, I think, was, and you, you just hinted at it, really, is the look of the film is so dramatically different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things more that, than I realized, more different than the first movie than I realized. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the first movie is all we we talked about this last podcast. It's all dark with these neon lights and smoke, and it it really does capture this city, dank, mm-hmm. wet, dark nighttime in a rundown New York or L.A., yeah. whatever you want to say, dystopian future, right? Yeah. And it also captures the noir theme really well. But what I like about this one is is everything other than Wallace's palace is incredibly bland in its mm-hmm. color palette. Yeah. And I mean pastel almost. Yeah. Where it's just bleak, it looks dusty. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked about that is this film, almost exactly what you're saying, is so much more interested in telling you about the dying world around them. Yeah. So it's not just the story of Decker and these androids with hints of other human things going on. It is very interesting being like, in small, subtle reminders all of human civilization is crumbling mm-hmm. under the weight of just what this is, right? Yeah. The earth's Absolutely. dead. It looks completely dead. There are no trees. Mm-hmm. There's one flower in the whole film. Like, it's crazy, It's right? such a... Do you remember the, the shot? It's such a great shot. But when we first meet um, the, the memory maker yeah. woman, and it's this green forest, and when the shot first comes up, your brain is like, why not? What, what the hell? What am I looking at? And then a couple of seconds later, you learn it's just like a you know a simulacrum. It's not real. Yeah, and it makes and you're like, okay, that makes which so much is like sense, it's such a trippy thing to say, but like the only green trees we see in this world are the fake ones that are yeah. put in androids' heads to keep them as slaves. Mm. Mm. <laughs> How it's up it's just messed up. It's so, <clears throat> uh, yeah, no, I think it it does so much visually with how that works, and yeah. I don't know. It surprised me this time just how cool visually it was. What about you? What you got any uh, stray thoughts that kind of popped up? Yeah, the text is too small. Yeah, oh, yeah. I wrote that in big letters at the top. When I saw it in the movie theater, everything's fine. And when I'm watching on my little 32 inch TV yeah. at home. I'm literally like, I can't read the stupid screen. This is so dumb. Yeah. Why do they make yeah. it so small? I don't, I don't know. know. Here, here's a hot take. That's the most important. Here's take a hot take. Here's a hot what? take. The film. One of the things the first film does really well mm-hmm. is it asks questions that hint at underlying themes okay. in very subtle ways. So one of the things was, I, we brought up last time, someone will say, what happens when we can't tell the difference between us and them anymore? And there isn't a monologue about what that would mean. Mm-hmm. There's just a look of terror on their face, and it's an awkward silence, and it captures what you're, the theme really well. Mm-hmm. Here's my hot take. 
there are a couple of scenes in this movie that are so unbelievably unnecessarily on the nose that are just like the theme of this movie is we need walls. <laughs> like, I um, do. I'm just thinking of the uh, the cop, his boss, even at one point says like there are walls that separate us and them. And if those walls fall down, we have war or something like that. And you're just like, I get it. Separation. Slavery, it's super important. <laughs> like Yeah, no, there's there's a couple I can agree with that. This is I don't know if you consider this the same thing. I was kind of surprised that there's so many there's not so many, but there's a few flashbacks. Yeah. That I thought of but I think about in the same context where I'm like, so the one I remember most that this time around I thought, for such a subtle movie, why are you doing this? Is when he he finds out he's not the child replicant thing. Mm. He's walking out and he sees the joy and he's basically, he's having this whole crisis. And then like we flash back to the guy saying, you've never seen a miracle. And it's actually, it's effective. But at the same time, I kind of thought like, I feel like I would have gotten there yeah. later. Like at some point I would have made that connection and it would have been really powerful. You didn't really need to tell me that. Yeah. And, and does that go back to the length of the film? Because the first one does not have a desire to do things like that. No. It assumes yeah. that it's going to, ref- you will reflect on what, each character is referencing as they go through their epiphanies or whatever else without having to spell it out. But it's also only a 90 minute film. Yeah. So like, is this because it's two and a half hours? They don't trust that you remember, which is maybe even fair. Like, yeah, are you it might thinking be fair. about Bautista in the last half of the movie, but every audible flashback he had to remind you of what theme they're trying to hit at. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Was an on those moment. Yeah. Had, yeah. yeah. They all kind of had this moment of, Oh wait, I would have, especially in like, maybe we're, different but i would like you know i'm actively analyzing the movie and yeah. so i'm sitting there and i'm picking out like oh that's like this that's like this and then sometimes it just feels like it's shoved in my face a little bit and i'm like okay well thanks well you're right that is a cool connection to this how interesting <laughs> wouldn't it be great if at the end <laughs> he's lying back the snow's falling on him he's about to die and then someone just goes Tears and rain. <laughs> it's the tears and rain. No, it's a reference I'll to the tears you, and rain. I'll scene. do you one better. I wish that he's lying there and he would have actually said, <laughs> "It's like tears <laughs> in rain." Nailed and it. The, yeah, that would have been honestly. That's what was stopping the movie from being great to me. Man, Ryan Gosling though, by the way, a beast. He's amazing. You said this to me yesterday. We've talked a little bit about the movie since rewatching it. You said Gosling's performance is better than, um, oh my God, if we don't, oh, Rucker Howard in the first movie, Roy Beatty, which is, of course, an amazing performance. To be clear, yeah, I have since expanded that to say it's better than any other performance in a Blade Runner movie. So he's just, I didn't in, know you. Okay. he's just included in that. Yeah. But yes, it's better than Rucker Howard. In a Blade Runner? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's easy because it's he's really the best just those two. Rucker Howard. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say Rucker Howard is the only other real contender. The one I noticed this time, because of that, I hadn't finished rewatching it, so I started looking for that. Um, the way he breathes, oh my God. this is a little bit, this is a little bit specific, but like his control over his breathing is insane. When he's walking down the scene, which I realize how greatly, how well paced this scene is, but when he's in the uh, industrial factory where he finds the wooden horse, okay. Do you remember? And, mm-hmm. and the music's yeah, yeah. climbing. Like, I, I, noticed this, I noticed it this time. As he's walking down, his breathing is getting more and more, like, interrupted. 
Like he starts getting his breath gets shallower and shallower and more like like he's freaking out. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's insane. I never even noticed that. And the more I watched, I was like, he controls his breathing really well. Yeah. And that's a very odd thing. Maybe every actor does that. I've never paid attention, but I noticed it. And First I was of all, like, not every actor guy, does that. I very much doubt every actor. It does is that. a sign of because I mean I remember, I remember when Drive came out. Uh, Lars and the Real Girl, you know, this run that Gosling had where he moved from the notebook to kind of like a, La La wait a minute, here. this guy is a legit actor? Yeah. And, I mean, Drive is the one that reminds me the most of this performance. Mm -hmm. In this film, and it's very similar in the sense of it's about a guy who only shows emotions on his face in very subtle twitches and movements and breathing yeah. until he doesn't. Yeah. Ooh. And then it really comes out like in drive is obviously maybe with brutal violence mm -hmm. just splattered throughout. And it's only like three or four scenes. But you think of the movie as, as a violent film because of Ryan Gosling's move from calm to explosion. Yeah. And, but it's the same thing in this film where I could watch Ryan Gosling's face and see a better performance than 99% of the ones you'll see in a movie. Yeah. Totally of just agree. twitches in his eyes, mm -hmm. right? Of, oh my gosh, yeah. It's, it's, it, it pairs the movie so well because it is much, it's a much subtler story in every regard. But, and he's right there for it. Like, mm. he, because his change is so, it also complements the pace of the film because his change is so gradual with like sudden jumps. Yeah. And that's very much how he acts. Uh, the scene, I mean, you know, it's actually weird how similar in some ways it is to something like Drive, right? Because uh, there's the amazing scene where he's talking to the memory maker and he learns that's a real memory and he thinks that means that he's confirmed he's not a replicant and he's just stand, sitting there and then suddenly he screams and it's like such a visceral moment. Like I remember the theater all jumping because yeah. we were so in, we were all so in tune with what was what he was going through, that we were we were right there with the character. Uh, yeah, and that's such a heartbreaking scene because mm -hmm. I remember something that caught me this time is you're watching him react to her as yeah. she watches the memory, and he's yeah. watching her face as she has she starts having an emotional reaction to it. Obviously, you'll find out later it's her memory, right? And that's but he's little... getting a clue that this is not going to be an easy answer to my question mm -hmm. and his anxiety you're watching it build yeah. and build yeah. and build and he like is like oh hunching over it's a oh my gosh, oh my it's gosh. and then he just snaps right and, mm. Mm. no everything everything he does is great um yeah man i don't know what else you got before we get into the into the meat um i thought well two thoughts okay the first one in this is a <laughs> Well, it has less saxophones than the first movie. That is Lot actually a less huge miss. Saxophones, huge miss. Yeah, I think it's like it took the half or the ninety percent of the last soundtrack that wasn't garbage and just used that. Oh my god! And got rid of the ten percent crappy saxophones. <laughs> movie could have anyway, used hundred percent more saxophone. The soundtrack was amazing. Yeah, and I thought the mystery slash detective elements of it were far superior to the first one. Um, I, I think, think about that. They made a better film. Well, I was going to say at some point that it's clearly they've they clearly changed genre though. It's not a noir, it's not a noir film. yeah, yeah, and, and so I could agree, but there's very little. There is a fundamental mystery 
And there is a great reveal. Like actually rewatching it, top five reveals of all time when he's talking to revolutionary leader One Eye Lady. Oh, it's so hard. And she just and just out of nowhere she just says, She will lead us in this. And like you and him, audience and Gosling, both look at her, it's like what? She? It's like, yeah, it was a daughter. And you're just like, my whole universe of whatever, and for us, audience, the film we thought we were watching isn't there. And then for him, his whole identity isn't there. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I do think it's, it. I think it also understands more holding the tension of what we know and what we don't. Mm -hmm. Notice the film doesn't answer, it actually brings up more questions about whether Deckard is a replicant. Yeah. And no and then it I think they just feel more in control over what we are being told and what is left to just, you know, figure it out. Or is in the process of thinking about it. Why there's auditory flashbacks that you don't need. Um, yeah, which is why yeah. those are in there. It really wraps that up. Um I have a yeah, I have a question for you specifically. What you got? And it, it goes back to the previous thing. What do you think of the soundtrack? I think it's Really good. But I do think it is it's funny. I don't do you are you aware that there's a huge backlash against Hans Zimmer and like a lot of online communities? No, I didn't yeah. know that. A lot of people really, I love Hans Zimmer, so yeah, I, I I love him too. A lot of people really hate him and I won't say hate him, but a lot of people think he's extremely overrated. Um, especially for like inception era stuff. Sure, yeah. And I think... I mean, they're wrong, but... It's I, no, yeah, I, I totally disagree. I think it's a little bit just uh, what's oversaturation, too, because for, yeah. for a little while now, he's been in every big thing. Um, I do kind of... My only minor thing about it, one amazing thing that the first film soundtrack does is it lifts the f- things you're seeing into a different emotion than what you would come to yourself. Mm. So you talked about this, right? That, that there's, it will bring you into fantasy, for example, like that first amazing shot of the first movie yeah. has these like lifting harp sounds and it sort of makes you transports you into this dreamlike st- setting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of a time that this one does that. In other words, the music is never setting the agenda of the emotion. In fact, and I don't, I'll pass it back to you, but the mm-hmm. only time I really was jarred by the music was the wall scene. The I was fight. about to say, it was the scene. And it wall. was so loud. <laughs> and it's trying to capture anger. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I get it. This is action y, <laughs> angry scene. This is the <laughs> like, climax of the yeah, movie. We yeah, get so it. Just to go to yeah. your saying, it doesn't heighten the emotion to a new space. It just mm. is like, angry action scene and it's actually you're right it's a very well written piece for that in fact the first time i watched it i think i was like losing it because it just sounds so cool it's amazing yeah yeah. but it doesn't lift this it doesn't take you somewhere that the scene wasn't going to take you anyways the only exception of course is the tears in the rain which isn't from this film it's from the last one because when he's sitting there which that does get me when he's sitting there and, and the tears in the rain uh little melody comes yes. back in and you're like, ah, ah, um, right in the heart. <laughs> but that's the only one that gets me. And that's obviously from the, from the last film. So, so all that say, I think it's great, but I also can see where it's not doing like, to me, like, like, you know, prime, prime soundtracks will, will 
work sometimes not exactly against the movie but will add a different dimension to the film yeah. and this one doesn't necessarily do that to me which is interesting because yeah it's not even necessarily a criticism because you're like yeah. like you said in the theater even this most recent time i remember the wall scene as just like being pushed against the back of my chair by how loud it was yeah and in a good way the intensity think, yeah. in a good way but it doesn't you're right it didn't take me to a new level of understanding or thought or emotion at, yeah. at all yeah so that's only, a fa- that's only possible the only other possible candidate is uh no still isn't still not a different emotion but it's good is the wallace theme which is like the the medieval chants mm. you know what i'm talking yeah. about like those it, but again it's still playing into what i'm already seeing but it's just doing it really well yeah it's actually mm. I'm actually getting lower on this soundtrack as we talk the about it. think about Because it. it kind of is like the audible flashbacks where it's like, you're supposed to be feeling scared in the scene. Yeah. You're and supposed to like, be feeling like he thinks he's a god. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and it's just like, so the soundtrack a god. is almost doing that in some, in that scene in particular, I forgot about that, but you're right. It's like, get it? Medieval chanting. He thinks he's holy. (laughs) It's weird, actually. Uh, I'm glad you asked the question. I haven't thought about it in a long time, but maybe because I used to be more involved with music stuff. But I used to have that conversation a lot about the way that music in a film, you know, like, like worse at its worst, it'll play against what you're watching. And that's when it's like, what what on earth is happening? This is stupid. Like when it's it's you know just in some way disconnected. And that doesn't happen much in AAA movies. At its second worst, it'll be unnoticeably invisible, transparent mm. in what's adding. Marvel yeah. movies do this. So yeah. Marvel movies like broadly, it's not adding. And you could literally play take the it heroic out. running song exactly, yeah, yeah, or yeah. the the crazy fight song. Yeah, this movie I think is in that third category where it is. Dramat- is adding a lot to the scene. It's it's aiding the creation of emotions in a really powerful way. And I think that that is actually exceedingly good. Yeah. But I, I have this reserved, like, top, top spot, which is when it's it adds a layer of emotion to the scene that wasn't there before. Yeah. And that's very rare, but when it does that, that's when it's like, oh, my God. So, Love yeah, it. no, it's great. It's good stuff. Love- Speaking of... Oh, well, sorry, what you got? No, you got it. Um, Jared Leto as Wallace. So you think? You I wrote said, down. Okay, lo- you already said Ryan Gosling is the best performance in Blade Runner, so you're already uh, uh, skimping my man Jared Leto. And I also wrote, "Is all this biblical language good?" Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> is this actually well written? I think it's it's funny. Do you know what his performance made me think of? Is the fact that the Joker and Suicide. Squad. It made me think of the Joker and Suicide. No, it didn't. <laughs> but you said of the last movie, and I thought this was a great point that almost every one in the first movie is overacted. Mm-hmm. This movie is not. Under- that's not true. Yeah. Like almost everyone is is underacting or or just really on par. Not Jared Leto. That guy, and it's the direct. This is the direction he was given. Yeah. But I mean, like. That is the overacted character. Yeah, that him, is the him like, and the the pirate from Captain Phillips who tries to sell him a horse. Those are the about two. That guy, yeah. Those are the two that over that eat this film up. Yeah, right? that just every and it's not bad. I think like his character is supposed to. His character never meets Kay. I just realized. Yeah, so you're you right. never see him interacting with Ryan Gosling. Uh, it's because that's who he's looking for is the child. Well, that's a very so would have given yeah. away the twist. But anyway, yeah. go on. Um, but yeah, no, I think that he. 
Like, I think it's a good performance, but I also am kind of like, I get if someone was would be like... So what do you like man, about it? I like the fact that the character isn't one who would be subtle. In a subtle movie, the free... You know, it's, it's very, in fact, in some ways it feels very classic sci-fi. It's like a god king mm-hmm. is how they introduce him, basically, where they're like, he invented a little bit like he's basically like a super Tyrell. Actually one of the best shots of the movie is when you see the, the, the Tyrell corporation like ziggurats and then the camera pans back and you have these monolithic, yeah. you know, it's almost Lovecraftian, like yeah. these gargantuan things, which is the Wallace headquarters. So it makes sense for that character to be larger than life, to be completely unbelievable because he is like this God King esque, you know, other dimensional being at this point. To me, I'm like, yeah, I can accept that. So. Yeah, which is, well, and that's what's interesting about his character. But once again, he kind of becomes, to me, a character that's too on the nose. Because, like, one mm-hmm. of the things, even with the Terrell build in, uh-huh. is one of the themes that I, I, I pull from it, I don't know if it's intended, is that his character is supposed to be the ultimate conclusion of this galactic capitalism basically what does it look like when greed corporate basically ownership of all things Mm -hmm. goes to its radical conclusion which is that obviously the pyramids get so much bigger than the previous ones that they're absurd but then also the delusion behind the person who is the mover or the shaker Mm -hmm. goes from Tyrell who is yeah obviously he casts himself as a god in terms of the gold he has and Mm. But doesn't talk like a god. I was going to say, he casts himself more as a king. Exactly. Yeah. So it's almost like, what is the inevitable conclusion of the delusion mm-hmm. of this capitalist dystopian system? And it's, well, of course, he owns so much. He thinks he created it and he thinks he is God. Yeah. Right. Um, once again, him talking in biblical language, mm-hmm. just almost a little bit too on the nose with some of it. It also makes some some great monologues yeah like there He's are a couple amazing that are yeah. amazing uh did it not blow your mind a little bit the first time you watched it when he quotes the line about rachel asking god for a child which is the scripture mm-hmm. and rachel is of course the name of the replicant from the first movie that in this movie is revealed had a child yeah is that was that not kind of a like oh my god moment of like did they did they they didn't, they didn't plan that no they, uh, okay yeah, that's a good point maybe that's they what, did they Probably knew. didn't. Ridley Scott knew. <laughs> he was there. He's a Bible geek. I've always said. Yeah, but no, I I, I agree. I think that um, I can see. Yeah, I can see that. About the him. performance is great. I yeah, mean, I think he does what he's like you said. What he's written to do. I just, oh man, and there's a couple scenes with him. Like I'm I a said. sucker for a monologue though. Oh, That's yeah. the reality. Is that like yeah. if you give me, I love the West Wing. If you give me a good monologue, I'll be there. I'll question. Watch it. What? How good of a president would he have been in the West Wing? Jared Leto or or Wallace Wallace amazing amazing <laughs> I would have watched enters every presidential meeting everyone walks in and we'll just, take back Eden <laughs> well the first thing that happens is you walk into a meeting and someone asks him a question and there's 30 seconds of silence yes. while he looks down and then he looks up and he says I have not labored since before the ages for this moment <laughs> or some you know something out here He's talking to these over, and someone's like, "We're just asking you for the fiscal report for 2019." I will drop like, the seeds of salvation in uh, my uh, garden of Eden and reclaim and the heavens re- by my mighty angels. We were not destined to. <laughs> it's 
purposefully over the top. I actually am going to go to work this week and only talk like Wallace and just normal Please conversation. Please do that. We work in the same place. Please do that. It's I want to watch everyone. Staff meeting. Someone's like, hey, what are we going to do about this service project? And I'm going to be like, I have laid the seeds of salvation. <laughs> <laughs> they were laid down from before time immemorial. Yeah, no. Okay, cool. So you have the volunteers ready. You're, you're good to go. So we're good, right? <laughs> yeah. You're kind of scaring us a little bit. <laughs> We're going to move now to the second section. Each of us has prepared a series of talking points, kind of like a thesis, an observation, an examination of some part of the film. Uh, I went first last time. I think you should go first this time. Okay. You good? I'll get all the glory. Well, all the glory. All the glory. That's right. What you got? So the thing that stuck out to me this, t- uh, this time watching it and the first time really was the focus that the film has on the ego. In particularly, this idea of separation that is created by um, an ego identity. One that is self-centered, one that is self-focused, one that is isolated from everyone else. In which I am a subject and everyone else is an object, right? Um, And one of the things that I love about the film is it explores this ego in layers. So, like, at the beginning of the film, it looks at what is the world that the ego creates. And it's it's a world of death. It's a world of isolation And it's also a world of delusion. Like all these people are living in a horrible existence, right? Mm -hmm. There is an opening scene in which a maggot farm is talked about as like the sustenance that saved humanity from famine. Yeah. Um, So there's these people who are all eating worms and acting like everything's great. But it's also just a dead world. It's bleak. It's, It's empty. There is no signs of life. You see two animals in the film, bees in a nuclear radiation Las Vegas, as well as a dog. In fact, the only animals you see in the film are in the place where the civilization these people lived in has been destroyed, which I think is a fascinating choice, right? So the, the oppression of the ego is the world that it creates on this large scale from the beginning of the film. But I think that what the film does so well is it talks about the subtle oppressions of the, the ego, which is found in the cycles that we live in and then the acceptance of those cycles as our reality. So basically, one of the best concepts of the film is that there are these people who are living out a cycle of death of themselves, of their character, of their souls, of the people around them. And it has built into it this idea that if we all accept that this is just the way it should be, we can all keep living in the lie that this is the way the world should be, right? Mm -hmm. And no one wants to break out of it because no one even thinks to because everyone is too comfortable in the cycles of acceptance to even think about what the world could be. And to some extent, that's what the ego perpetrates in this film is a bunch of people who say, if we all get into the room and buy into the same lie, everything is fine. Which is also, which we'll get into later, why it punishes people who dare to dream of something different than itself, right? But so everyone is trapped in this film in some sort of cycle. I think Kay and the female rep are kind of trapped in the cycle of oppression, right? They are slaves being told that it's the other slaves that are keeping you trapped here. 
you're almost human because you're not like the older replicants. And if we couldn't, if we just could get rid of those pesky older replicants, we would finally accept you as people. Mm. And that's what they're striving for to be a higher form of slave. Right. But that carrot at the end of that keeps them both doing something that they know neither of them clearly want to do. In fact, each of them is pained almost every time that they do something self-destructive or destructive. They just go in opposite ways of dealing with that pain. Right. Mm. And then you have like even his girlfriend where she's trapped. She's a consciousness of sorts trapped in a box, right? Mm. Then there is Wallace, who's trapped in his pride, in which he's like doing this idea of nine worlds isn't enough, I could be remembered forever. Like he's seeking the immortality, which is just another ego dream, right? And then obviously everyone is trapped in this world. And I think one of the things that I love about the film is that they're all trapped in a place without life, telling each other that we're living, and they're faking that they're living. Like I love when Kay sits down and he eats a meal with a hologram over it, and acts like it's a real meal. Yeah. And then everyone acts like, every, once again, it goes back into this idea that everyone's acting like it's fine. And if we just fake it long enough and no one admits that this is all nonsense, that this world is death, then we can all live in the delusion and hopefully not have to suffer, right? So I think one of the things that the ego does in this film, it's sent my, one of my central thesis statements, you could say, of this film is that the ego wins by tricking everyone into buying into the idea that its vision for the world and the cycles of hierarchies that it makes are fine, even when everything you see tells you otherwise, because it tells you that this is comfortable and everything outside of these normal cycles of life will bring pain. Mm -hmm. So no one dares to go on that journey, right? Because they tell you this is the only way it could be. This is the only way it should be. This is just the way it is. So I think it's a little more subtle. We see that it manipulates in another way. I think it uses like this fake sense of separation in the most subtle form, which is that it convinces us that if we could just turn the table, that would solve the problem. And I think you see this in the rebel form, right? And one of the most dangerous parts of the ego in this film is that what it really tries to do is when it gets found out, when it gets opposed, it tries to take over and hide itself. So when there comes this rebel group that's opposing this dominant ego, you know, power structure, the rebels, the, the replicants, what does it do? It manipulates them into buying into the same cycle in which they are on the other side of the hierarchy and take the exact same action in the reverse order, right? They, it tricks you into thinking the problem is not the system. The problem is not the cycle of violence. The problem is not the oppression. The problem is not the anger, the vengeance, the destruction. It's not this world that it's created. Don't look at any of the symptoms. The problem is that you're not on top. Yeah. And if you were on top of the exact same system, everything would be fine. Which is why I love the scene with the rebel. Because he sits down with Kay, and Kay's gone on the journey of ego de deconstruction at least a little bit. Or at least he's come on the journey of enlightenment a little bit. And you can tell he's visibly shooken up when she proposes the exact same action, which is killed Decker, as he has seen the other side do the entire film. Mm. And he's like, finally, there's this group of people who's calling him into action to change the way things are, and they sound exactly like mm. the others. I think even one of the girls says, we're even more human than they are, which is just like a beautiful way of being like, the ego, all it did, switch sides, hit itself a little more, and mm. kick the cycle off in a little bit more subtle way, right? So 
I think one of the things that we come from there is like, so what do we do? And I think that's where you look at Kay. Because Kay is the only one who's willing to go on the journey of getting beyond this. And it's basically this idea of transcending, overcoming, and eventually including the pain of ego deconstruction in your life, right? So one of the things I love about Kay is that as we go through his hero's journey of sorts, you know, you watch him go through immense pain. You watch him go through the pain of losing himself. You watch him go through the pain in the scene of him talking to the dream maker of saying, I basically finding out I don't know who I am. The rebel scene, I don't know who I am. Each time he's agonized, there's a part of him that's ripped apart. And it's because the idea of breaking that cycle requires that you break the programming that the cycle gave you. And to unlearn the programming, there has to be a fundamental suffering that comes with it. There has to be a fundamental loss of who you are. There has to be a fundamental shattering of your sense of self. And no one else in the film is willing to go on that journey except for Kay, right? And it's that movement towards this, this inclusion of everything that I am, all the good and the bad, everything that I've been, into a self that is fully realized and able to develop meaning by itself outside of the systems that created it, right? And ultimately, that's what I think is the, the beautiful part of the end of the film, is that we find a character that goes on a journey of suffering, of a story that is new to him, of self-realization. And the question that I think the film asks at the end is, was it worth it? And the deafening answer is yes. Yeah. And it's yes because for the first time we have a character in the film that can not only determine his own meaning, but can also determine his own cycles of existence, which could even include dying of the self to save another, right? Yeah. Anyways, I'm not sure if that all makes sense, but it's like, that's the process I loved about this film was this oppressive ego world, it's painful deconstruction and the question of was it worth it at the end? I think um, a lot of our thoughts overlap. I think they'll be distinct, but you know, if nothing else, I think the thing the film does well, and actually the way it is most similar to the first one, is how it is. There's a subversiveness to it. Yeah. Well, the thing and the thing you said I reacted to really strongly is the moment when you realize that all the forces at play in the film the enforces like with a capital f you know are sort of mirroring each other um obviously you have wallace who wants to find the child so that he can create a new slave race and you have the revolutionaries who obviously seem better on some level but i think you got at it right that fundamentally their answer is still well we should just be in power yeah they actually say something to the effect of um, I don't remember if it was more, we're more human, but it was certainly something about we're better than human. Yes. Um, and then you even have the, the madam of the LAPD who is kind of more trying to keep the status quo, but even within that, I think it's still, yeah, it's just as obviously, you know, everything should just, it, it's still perpetuating a cycle. It's not, not, no one's breaking outside of the basic sort of turn of the wheel. Yeah. Right? When I think that's, I think when the fundamental systems that we create, 
with an ego-driven society is one that's based on comparison and then compulsion or oppression, Yeah. right? So it starts with some level of the separation of comparison, which is I, who am I compared to you? And then the only response to that is usually a power dynamic in, Mm -hmm. in the ego, right? So it is... I am greater than or I am less than. Mm-hmm. And then that's the hierarchy in which it's and on. That's how I'm going to think about the whole yeah. world. Yeah. So it is, but it is an amazing turn where it's just like, so the, we tell ourselves that the villain of this film is the humans oppressing the replicants. Yeah. Well, and yet, uh, kinda, yeah. if the villain of the film is this corrupted ego, then you suddenly realize that that is what creates that scene with the rebels. Mm-hmm. That ultimately the villain of the film will never be someone defeating the other. It's the system that traps them within the game that tells them that the defeating is what matters at all. Yeah. Right. And as long as that's the case, replicants are going to replace humans, enslave humans, dominate humans. Mm -hmm. And then it's just going to be this flipping of a coin back and forth. Right. Yeah. I think it get you know, so, so how do you interpret then what K does do? Because you already said he breaks out of the cycle, but isn't it fascinating that it's such a small, ultimately, it's such a small act that he does, right? Mm-hmm. And in the midst of all these forces that are basically in the middle of this cycle of, of huge world-changing things, he reunites a father with his daughter. And at the end of at the end of the day, that's kind of all he does. Yeah. Is that, so how's that break, is that really breaking out of the cycle? Like, what's it? Yeah. What's the significance? I think he's actually a great foil even with, um, I always, at least in this rewatch, I thought of it with Wallace. You know, sure. Wallace has the scene where he's ranting and raving that he's only taken humanity to nine new worlds. Mm-hmm. And that's not <laughs> enough, right? It's yeah. not enough. I still have not done enough to give my life meaning. We should, to give it, my, we should stretch across the stars yes. or something. Yeah. To give my purpose, to give me meaning, to give my life anything, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what's beautiful about well, what's disturbing and what's sad about his reality is that Wallace's. that is the ego world taken to its extreme, right? Yeah. That I am only, I am only have meaning in my life if I am the ultimate form of conquest, of consumption, mm-hmm. of legacy. Yeah. Right? If I have enough planets named after me, that'll never be forgotten, right? And ultimately, that's a meaning that you've been given by these cycles that tell you that power is at the core and hierarchy is at the core of, of our existence, right? Mm-hmm. So what I, what I think is beautiful about the end with K is he goes on this journey where he takes on a new story, right? That I am in some way going to be the hero. Obviously, to go on the paradox of finding out that you're not. Yeah. And when that's shattered, when the ego is shattered, when this idea that you are going to be the chosen one to destroy the system, the mm-hmm. enemy... And you find out, oh, crap, not only am I not that, but the people who are fighting against it are exactly like it. That's such an ego death for Kay that he is able, I believe in the film, the beauty of the last scene is to end up as a person who can go beyond his programming, mm. which no one else in the film, human or replicant, can. Yeah, They all are following a track that they have been given by their systems, by their brain chemistry, by their place in the world, right? But Kay, having gone on this journey of suffering, of loss of identity, of building up a fake identity and having that shattered, has to go inward just to say, I am only what I do in the world. Yeah. And I am mm. only yeah. how I 
exist in my world. Yeah. Which means that for, he's the only person in the entire film who can say, I can make my own meaning. Yeah. And I'm going to choose my meaning to be compassionate. And I'm going to, unlike Wallace, who cannot find meaning in nine new worlds, he says, I'm going to find ultimate meaning in one person. Mm. The easing of suffering of one person and an act of compassion towards one person. Yeah, absolutely. And in doing that, he saves the universe. He says, I can't say... The ego tells me that the only way I'll have meaning is if I save all things. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is, the only way I'll have meaning is if I save this one thing. Right? In a way, what the revolutionary said, which is another line that they flash yeah. back to yeah. unnecessarily. Unnecessarily. Because it, it was like 30 seconds earlier. I get it. <laughs> but what she says... He's about uh, to die to save someone. <laughs> the most human thing you can do is to sacrifice yourself for something. Mm. Is true. But he's the only one who understands that... You don't have to find the the thing you sacrifice for. It doesn't have to be this over the top world changing thing. It can be as small as easing that easing suffering. Like yeah, when well, it's also this beautiful reminder that like, how do we break the cycle? How do we prevent ourselves from becoming the evil that we oppose? And it's simply to whoever is in front of us. Yeah. To find all meaning in the universe. We're getting right? dangerously close to my thing now, but okay. it's but it's okay. Um, do you have anything else you wanted to touch on for this part? So one of the things from when I was thinking about this ego and then like the hero's journey of, of deconstructing it, I think one of the powerful parts of this film is ultimately the story that takes Kay on the journey of ego deconstruction Mm. isn't real, right? He finds out that it's not real at all. And I, and and like the very first thing that allows him to start lying and start expanding beyond his programming, mm-hmm. start thinking for himself in the film, is the horse. It is the memory. It is the the implanted memory that finds out is not his. Yeah. So the question is, do you think I'm, it matters that the story in the memory or even the dream that takes him beyond basically his programming? Do you think it matters that it's not true? I, I feel like this will be a tangent, but I'm really excited about this question. I didn't end up talking or I don't have much about it in my talking points, but I actually, I kind of secretly think this is like probably the single biggest idea of the film. Right? Yeah. Is that there's this reiteration over and over again about, and this even connects to the first film a little bit. Does it actually matter if something is inauthentic? Does it matter if something's not real? Doesn't it only matter where it gets you? Mm. I think like the best example of this is Joy, who I realized this time is such a fascinating character. Um, Cause I, I can't really remember a film character who operates quite like she does. That's his girlfriend. The, mm-hmm. the, yeah. Yeah. Cause the way that they form such a close connection and rewatching it, you know, she does you, you, you buy it. You're there with her. And then, like, the intensity of his realization, like, when she names him Joe, that's the great, that's the thing, right? When he then realizes that Joe is a name in that programming that she just calls people. And it's, and so it seems like it's, it's, it's pushing that question so far forward of, you know, it got him there, but doesn't matter that it wasn't real at all. I think that, I mean, the short answer is no, it doesn't matter. I think the way it connects to the first film is it gets back to the idea of like, what do you think humanity is? Mm. Right? Like is humanity being human, born human, or is it 
what you do. And the first film's answer is clearly it's what you do, right? Because the only real human quote unquote character is the replicant. And I think it's a continuation of that, but just in deeper and deeper levels, because it keeps going back to this idea of what creates the response and what sends you on the journey doesn't have to be real for the impact to be real. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's hugely important in the movie, and I wish I had more to say about it. Uh, but yeah, I think that it's clearly you see it in that character, anyways. Yeah, I actually think. Yeah, I, I mean, I I just think you said it perfectly. Um, I think there's one of the things that I'm always fascinated by in the spiritual journeys, in the spiritual. I don't know. I, just the thinker is that I, I'm drawn towards is this idea that like the journey ultimately towards any level of enlightenment really only takes two things and it's a new narrative and willingness. Mm-hmm. So you're given a new story. Usually in a hero's journey, it's going to be a quest, right? Yeah. That you can get whatever if you go to wherever. Mm-hmm. And then there's a willingness to go. Yeah. And if you have those two things and you go, everything else is going to basically be determined by whether you can sustain and surrender to the suffering that comes with that journey and that Mm -hmm. process of leaving home. Right. And what I love about that is it captures what this film kind of is hammering, which is that what you just said at no point in that formula to say the story that sends you there has to be true. Yeah. The treasure might not really be there. Yeah. Because ultimately it's your willingness to move, to leave home, and the suffering that creates of losing who you are and then rediscovering it. Yeah. That is f- infinitely more empowered, empowering and powerful than the literal facts of any of the narrative. Right. Yeah. It's the power of metaphor. It's the power of of, of yeah, it's the power of leaving home. Mm. And allowing yourself to die. And going on the journey. And the unlearning and the deprogramming and the new thing, right? I would even argue, this is a fresh thought, so this may be a little bit unbaked. I would even argue that this is the significance of Deckard rejecting Rachel. So he has the line of, her eyes were green, which is a great line. It is a great line. But I kind of don't accept it in terms of, I think there's a layer beneath that. I think that Deckard at that moment understands it was never it wasn't the quote-unquote object right it wasn't the beautiful woman in other in other words wallace completely misunderstood he even says i can give you joy and he brings out rachel and in that sense wallace has completely misunderstood relationships actually yeah because deckard is staying there and for a moment he's obviously enraptured but i think what he goes through is the realization of it wasn't like the the person the even the personality in a way but it was the journey we went on yes that's the relationship yeah. you can't rebuild that as much as you want to by just putting her in front of me again when she was 30 well and there's a deeper level oh, man there's a deep moment in that which even goes back to the last film of what does it mean to be human and i even love that wallace tries to antagonize attack him with this idea that you might be a replicant yeah and what i love is it doesn't face decker because decker knows being a replicant or being a human is not the question yeah it said you go on a journey of becoming human yeah 
right? So he knows. He's like, I could be. I mean, yeah, he's shook by it, but you can mm-hmm. tell it doesn't throw him off. And ultimately, he's like, whether I'm a replicant or a human, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I still went on a journey with this other person and found and was able to create meaning in my life. Yeah. Oh. And thus, right. your threat doesn't even have power over me because mm-hmm. it's not what I'm even concerned with, right? Yeah. Which obviously is found in a beautiful scene in in Vegas when the dog and he says, "Is the dog <laughs> real?" And he says, you should ask it, which is basically just like, I don't care. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You're asking the wrong question. I have a relationship with the thing that looks like a dog. Mm -hmm. So it's real. Everyone wants to be special, uh, especially we're millennials. Obviously, we get mocked for that. But, you know, everyone wants to think of themselves as special. It's not necessarily enough to be smart. You would want to be particularly smart. It's not necessarily enough to be attractive in the sense of just finding comfort in your own level of attractiveness. You have to be particularly attractive compared to other people. Mm. You want to have a unique experience. You want your relationships to be stronger and more passionate and more intimate than other people's relationships. And saying it that way, I think we all know it's nonsense to think that we are particularly different. I think in our head, you know, in our, in our brains, most of us get that, that it doesn't actually make sense to assume I'm incredibly different than other, than other people. But that doesn't stop us from habitually rewriting what is happening around us to match whatever narrative keeps us special. We are prone to constantly reinforcing the fact that we are the protagonist in our own stories. Um, And of course, we would do that. That's what our culture sort of does. It's what's ingrained in a lot of the stories that we tell over and over again. Uh, you already talked about the hero's journey, and it's it's really the first scene of every great narrative kind of adventure that we watch. It's the moment when someone looks at the protagonist and says, you are different. You are special. Luke Skywalker is given his father's lightsaber, right? And then he's taken on a journey of discovery. It's a meme, but Harry Potter, right? You're a wizard. He's told he's a wizard. He's told you're special. You're different. You're not like every, anyone else. For the record, this is actually every superhero origin as well. They learn that something sets them apart. And then they learn that that makes them better than other people. And then crucially, they choose to use it sacrificially for the good of others. And I actually think Blade Runner 2049 combats that idea directly. Mm. Because if there's one character in the movie who's closest to the classic hero... It's probably love. The psycho replicant who works for Wallace. The first time I saw the movie, I actually really did not understand her character. I thought she was kind of shallow. I thought she was kind of a one-dimensional villain. And in some ways, maybe she is. But I recognize now this connection between her narrative and the narrative of what it means to be special. We don't see it on screen but we're told over and over again that she understands that she is special 
Kay recognizes it immediately. He looks at when she introduces herself. He says, you must be special. They named you. Uh, most importantly, she's told by Wallace. He calls her, I think, his brightest little angel. Um, and she meets the qualifications of what we would think someone special is. She's well-made. She has immense powers. Uh, she's set aside for an incredibly important task. She's really she's special in some ways. She is what we would consider to be that. But what's notable is that her response is to trend towards cruelty. She lies and she manipulates and she hurts and she overwhelms and she destroys in the name of maintaining her specialness as an identity. Because her specialness is something that she has to defend. It's something she can lose. If you remember at the moment when she believes she's defeated Kay on the seawall, and she thinks she's victorious, she shouts to him, I am the best. And again, the first time I saw it, I was like, well, that was kind of cheesy. But I think it's important because it shows that the most important part of her entire identity is maintaining her status as one who is special. I kind of think it's a little bit like if you were to watch a Marvel movie, but right at the point when the character realizes they have special powers, they start using those powers to bully other people, to achieve more things to, to fulfill their own ambition, to set themselves apart from normal people. But on the other side of the spectrum, we have Kay, who is probably the most subversive film protagonist, at least in my uh, immediate memory. You already said it, but Kay's journey is one of explicitly and brutally discovering just how not special he is. He begins the film thinking he's like any replicant. He goes on this intense journey of believing that he is somehow set apart, that he is different. Joy has this amazing moment where she's saying to him, you were born, wanted, loved. But then he very rapidly learns that not only is he not set apart, is he not special in any way, but that his one cherished relationship with Joy was in some way inauthentic, that she only loved or cared for him in as much as she was programmed to. And there was really nothing special about that at all. In some ways, I think it's more painful, not necessarily to learn that I am not special, but to learn that my relationships with other people aren't even special. It's why, for a lot of people, being cheated on is one of the most painful transgressions imaginable, because it takes this intimate relationship and suddenly you learn that this person didn't see it that way and that they were willing to on some, and that's really the great fear, right? Is that they thought about someone else the way they think about you. At this crossroads, we see what Kay chooses to do in exactly the opposite circumstance of love. Where she believes she's special, she becomes driven inward. But Kay alone of probably any character in the film looks outward and finds the most immediate wrong he can write. Every other character has an agenda which is tied to their self-worth, but Kay alone can sacrifice himself for such a small thing as repairing a broken family, because he knows he is not special. He has lost his identity, and he can't really lose anything more. 
I think in a very real way, especially in that very final scene, he transcends like no other character in the movie. He's above the fight and the defense of what you believe is your entire identity. And in that sense, he's actually very analogous to Roy Beatty from the first movie. Because I think both films ask the same question. What provokes miraculous compassion? And I think they have virtually the same answer. Because Roy and Kay are both forced to reckon with their lack of control over their own circumstance. With Roy, it's his mortality. With Kay, it's his identity. They're very similar, but they're distinct. I think we all have to reckon with those at some point. And crucially, the thing that makes them special, the thing that makes them stand out, is that they choose to show love through that circumstance. So that was what stood out to me. No, I love that. Um, I think two immediate thoughts. Yeah. One, I love... I love the idea that the fundamental difference between love and K is not necessarily the desire... Desire to be special in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But it is about the journey... The willingness to go on the journey to blow up what we think makes us special in the beginning. Yeah. And then to redefine it to some degree by the road we've walked. So I think one of the things I love about love <laughs> is that she looks inward for meaning or she thinks she's looking inward for meaning. I'm mm -hmm. the best, but ultimately she's still judging all of her meaning by comparison through the lens of Wallace. Yeah. Her maker. Yeah. Right. So it's still a meaning that is given. It's still a meaning that mm. is earned. It's still she a thinks meaning. it's derived from something inert in her. Uh, that is but. shown by actions that please an outside force. Yeah. Right. Not by a desire and a will to do right or to do what is true to myself. Because mm -hmm. she ultimately does not know who it herself is. Yeah. She only knows what herself is in relation to the promises and the kindness and the satisfaction of another. Wallace of her God. Right? Yeah. Which goes into a whole bunch of things that happens when we make a human being God. But what I really love is that for Kay, what I really love about Kay is that he has gone on the journey that when he finds meaning, it's kind of like what I talked about earlier. It is truly coming from an inward space yeah, of a determined meaning of a found meaning of a created meaning of an owned and embodied meaning. Mm -hmm. Right. It is not one that's been given to him. Which means that for the first time in the film, someone truly can say to be human is to die for someone else. Yeah. Because he is, oh man, actually I think it is to be human is to die for something meaningful. Yeah. Right? And it's yeah. only, mm -hmm. he's the first character who can say that honestly because he's the first character that is dying for something that he has determined to be meaningful mm -hmm. outside of programming that was given to him. Yeah. And programming in this context isn't just the replicant thing. It's no, any, yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. whatever you. It's almost appeal to authority. It's whatever the person and the and the forces above you tell you are most valuable. But he can break through that and see again. I, I call it the wrong that's right in front of him. The thing that it's not in some ways it's not complicated. This person's going to be killed or tortured by someone, 
and he's a and he's been broken in relationship with his daughter and i can fix that yeah and it's so small but so that's why i can't get over the way in the first movie i couldn't get over how unexpected the act of compassion is in this movie i can't get over it is an unexpected act of compassion but it's also so blindingly small in the context of the film i think like one of actually maybe the most powerful line in the movie to me is when Deckard at the very end asks him why. Yeah. And he just, and he waits a second and then he just says, go see your daughter. Go meet your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Go meet your daughter. That's so good. Because he knows that's, that's all he needs. He doesn't need, he can't even, how could he possibly answer why it's too much for that? Oh man. And it's the only moment of transcendence, right? Of Mm -hmm. to have all the power in a broken system is to have no power at all. Yeah, but to have all the compassion in something that transcends that system and breaks that system and goes beyond that system and finds what it means to be human, mm-hmm. and w- one action with one person is somehow for Kay in that moment more powerful than anything the other kingdom has to offer. Right? Yeah, absolutely. God, that's just, it's so good. Go meet your daughter. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. In fact, the more I think about it, you and I had said yesterday. That we weren't sure if anything in this film matches the monologue at the end of Blade Runner 1. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if anything does. But if, I think if you really let that hit you, it's pretty close. Yeah. Right? Because the implications of that sentence, it just floors me. It's um, so much more subtle, but it, it's yeah. existentially just equally powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think to me it also gets to the idea of... We get so obsessed with these huge... Actually, again, you know, sorry to... I feel like I'm harping on this at this point, but it's so cool to me because it's subversive two ways. It's subversive in the context of film language. This is a big $400 million sci-fi film, you know, with all the special effects, with all the amazing uh, uh, actors, Mm. all this stuff. And it's willing to have this moment of saying... The character, the protagonist is choosing the right thing by not engaging in these huge forces. Um, It's what I am desperate, for the record, it's what I'm desperately wishing one superhero movie would do. Just one. Yeah. Is give me a not end of the world ending. Give me a, a character, an ending where a character just decides to repair a relationship or sacrifice themselves for something small. Yeah. And because I think it's such a powerful message of what it means to do good. And again, I started to say it's a powerful message in the context of film language today. It's also just in the context of culture. It's counterintuitive in a very deep way. When it's actually, yeah, man, I think that's spot on. And I think you're, I, I crave it too. Cause I think one of the powerful sentiments of, of this movie is, and it's something you brought up in the last podcast, but it's third way thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that like at the end of this film, quite frankly, none of the systems that have oppressed K are gone no. and they will not go away. There not is, soon. Yeah. There is going to be violence soon. There will be battle soon, but there is no promise in the film. There's in even fact, some ambiguity about, you know, because the daughter is still alive. Yeah. Deckard is still alive. And the fact yeah. that Deckard's alive means maybe some people are going to find them. So there's a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. And there's certainly no promise that what Kay has done by any right has broken the system or defeated the evil. Yeah. And yet, 
there is an implication in the film that he has absolutely defeated the evil. And it goes back to the third way thinking, which is in this moment of the hero's journey, in this moment of confronting evil, the greatest thing that one can do is simply to not allow it to have power over you. Yeah. To let it do its worst, to face it head on and to say, you have no power. You have yeah. nothing over me. In fact, I will do the opposite of you to the face of death. Yeah. Even for the smallest person, the smallest life, I will say life over death. I will saving over destruction. Mm, yeah. Love over hate. Whatever you want to say, but in in this third way thinking is simply to put yourself in front of it, expose it for being impotent, and to choose to do the opposite. Yeah. And in Absolutely. that, and, and not giving into it is ultimately the only thing that destroys the systems these people are raging against, which no one else, like I said, no one else in the film seems to get. Yeah. They want to take part in it. They want to flip the scales. They just want to be at the top of the system mm-hmm. without denying its power or deconstructing it. To wrap up, we both have just one more question for each other. Um, do you want to go for? I won first last time as well. You got so you can go. You got this. Yeah. All right. So I think one of the in spiritual thought, one of the great concepts of the hero's journey is you only can keep something if you're willing to give it away. Mm-hmm. That ultimately, when you have an attachment to it. It will poison you. It will create a, a disturbing relationship with it that will, to some extent, make the the possession of the thing, even the thought of possessing it, unhealthy, and ultimately you'll lose it. Mm-hmm. So to keep it, you must give it away. Yeah. To live, you must die. I mean, these appear in all sorts of spiritual language. Yeah. So at the end of the film, the thing that Kay thinks is special this relationship with Decker Mm -hmm. of sonship of meaning he can only give away or he can only keep it of having value by giving it away to someone else, basically letting it go. How how does that strike you in your own life? What Mm -hmm. is that concept of you can only keep something if you give it away? How does that hit home? I mean, I think it hits me hugely and obviously you and I talk about it a lot, but if I had to think of a specific thing or at least like a general idea, um, I think that, that for me and for a lot of people, and in some ways this ties into something we already talked about, but a huge part of this is identity, right? Mm. So I think that, for example, you know, for me, there's certain things that I just know about myself or I think I know about myself. And that I've decided I am this person. I am this kind of person. And if I were ever to sit down and write out all of those, I would discover that a lot of them either aren't true or openly contradict each other. So, you know, things about ambition, but also kindness in a way that isn't necessarily... It's not that those things are mutually exclusive, but it's that I know in me they don't actually add up to the same thing. It's this sort of ideal about how I see myself that I want to hold on to. So I would say that um, 
the lesson is that you're not really going to know who you are until you start releasing your ideas about who you are. Mm. Right. So you're going to, and I'm saying that like I'm a pro, I'm not a pro. I'm still holding on to tons of stuff about who I am, but I'm in the process. So give me a break. But I think that's the thing, right? Is that like, you know, you may think that you want to, and I, I have a tendency to be like, you know, I have a really good idea of who I am, but I think the reality is I have no clue who I am most of the time. That's good. And not until I start releasing all these built up pre notions, preconceptions about, well, I am patient or I am a writer or I am this. I hold on to those so closely that they end up coloring the reality of my world. And so I don't have a very clear picture of myself or of other things until I let go of them. Mm. So, yeah, that's what I would say. Uh, for mine, I have two, and I can't decide which one I want to ask. One of them is really open-ended. Do you want open-ended or not? I'm not. Make your own meaning. <sighs> okay. I liked this one, so I'm just going to ask it. If it doesn't go anywhere, we'll edit it out. <laughs> um, okay. This is a thought experiment I'm sure you've heard before. But I think it gets to a huge point in this movie, and I'm just curious what you think about it. Imagine that your spouse or your best friend or even your dog was destroyed last night. And all day, all day today, you've been interacting with a replicant with their exact features their exact personality, their exact memories. Is anything different about your relationship? So, yeah, obviously. Um, obviously. I think it's obvious. And it's because of the, the heart of the film. I mean, I think the dream maker at one point says to be human is to, to remember or to have memories, um, to have experience and Honestly, it also goes back to the first movie mm -hmm. of our humanity comes through what comes through our eyes, what we see, the world we live in, um, the world as we experience it, the journey we walk is so much more powerful mm -hmm. in the creation of meaning than my brain chemistry. In fact, my brain lies. My brain tells me that I should be angry or I should be sad or I should be unhappy or I should be ungrateful uh, more often than any other emotion. Mm -hmm. And if I take any amount of time to reflect upon the experiences I've had and the people I've met along the way, uh, I would recognize those as empty, valueless lies. Mm -hmm. So ult in, in ultimately, I can only be grounded if I exist within the journey I've walked more so than even my physical being. I mean, I just believe that, um, as a spiritual person, I, I particularly believe that there's something more to identity than, yeah. Well, there's something more than, than presence. There's something more to presence than my own body to some mm -hmm. degree. 
my ability to be present in a moment is more powerful than any, the best thinking I've ever had. Hmm. Um, which is ultimately what we're talking about is can we create a redesigned brain that is exactly like the other one, but has not been on the journey that the person has been on. Mm-hmm. And does that make that person the same? And I think the answer is fundamentally no, but from my perspective of I've walked a path with a person and that has meaning because I have chosen to give it meaning But the nature of being with this exact, this person. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a me part of it, but there's also a, the other person uh, part of it too, which is, you know, to some degree, my experience with the other has shaped them mm-hmm. in a way that cannot be recreated because of memory, because of of shared moments, yeah, present moments that cannot be repeated by the nature of time. Yeah. So would they be the same now? Because our meaning that we've created is not the same because it doesn't exist. Interesting. I love that. I actually read that exactly opposite. Mm. Because I thought it had to do with, I like where you went with it, but I was thinking about it in the context of authenticity and authenticity Mm -hmm. and the way that are we not only our memories, right? Mm -hmm. So like, would it make a difference if you weren't? So you went in the direction of presence. I literally thought of it in the direction of joy, the scene Mm. with joy. Yeah. Of... She has no. She, she had green eyes. Yeah, that's my response to you. Is she had green, she had green eyes. eyes? And it's that she, this isn't her, not because you haven't cloned her identically, mm-hmm. but because it's not her. Because the her I walked with is not this person. Right? Mm. That's way better. Yeah, I yeah. like that. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been this film could be your life. Next week we are talking about ET. I don't know if you remember that. Woo! We said that. We're gonna ride uh, in the bike. Ride in the bike. It's going to be great. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. Why is he so short? Who? The alien. Okay. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. Is that the ending? Is that the it? ending? It was such a serious moment. It was such a powerful moment. And then.